Welcome everybody to this Brexit and Beyond podcast. Today it's my privilege and my pleasure to introduce Cass Muda. Uh, you will have heard of Cass if you have ever looked into the subject of populism. Uh, he is one of the foremost authorities on that subject, not just in an academic sense, but also in the sense of broadening out, I guess, the understanding of uh, populism within the academy to the wider world. Kaz also writes for The Guardian, among very many other publications. He's also got his own podcast, so we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, and one of the reasons that we wanted to talk to him was because he is one of those scholars who I think has enormous respect in the academy, but also has this much further reaching reputation as a kind of go-to person to discuss a particular concept, in this case, populism, but someone who also writes very interestingly, not just about European politics, and that's where he started out, but also American politics uh, as well. So welcome, Kaz, to podcast. Your PhD research was on right-wing uh, extremism. Um, what got you into that particular subject? Well, when you grew up in the Netherlands in the 1970s and 1980s. I started university in 1986. The far right was all over the place, even though we had a very tiny far right party, which entered parliament in 1982. There were massive demonstrations and this, this argument that fascism was back and whatever was very big. And, and I never really fully understood that, but I was fascinated by that debate, as I'd always been fascinated by kind of the skittish debate about the Second World War and the role of the Netherlands in it. And so that played a role. My professor, Joop van Holstein, was very interested in that too. And then it was just an avenue, right? Because again, I, it took me six and a half years to, to do my undergraduate degree. I had a very good final thesis, but overall I wasn't remarkable. And the only way really that I could get a PhD position was to work on something that was so topical and yet so few people were interested in or knew something about. Now, I mean, some people are attracted by the sort of glamour of the, of the far right. Would you say that was true for you? No, not at all. So while it's not a topic I, I talk about much, my brother was far right um, a long time ago and, and he was at that point in time. And so I actually knew a lot about how unglamorous the far right was. And in part, the reason why I was so fascinated was that everyone was so afraid at that point in time about the far right, which was so amateuristic and was so small. And so my interest actually from the beginning has never been in the far right. I'm not puzzled by the far right. I don't think that they're an enigma. They're really straightforward. And I'm also not like puzzled by racism. Like, I don't think racism is limited to the far right. And um, while I'm pretty much upper middle class, I've my whole life played football and I've been to stadiums all over the place. So I've, seen, I've seen racism around. What, what fascinated me much more was how such a small group could dominate so much debate and create so much fear. And, and, and why do you think that is? I mean, what, why, what is it about the far right that makes the media so incredibly interested? Well, in the Dutch context and the German context, it, made, it makes sense because we have a very strong kind of Holocaust trauma and, and the, world, the Second World War was formative for when I grew up. I mean, pretty much the last two years 
years of history in my high school was all about the Second World War. And as uh, one scholar, Jaap van Donsla in the Netherlands, said that the, the Second World War defines morality, what is good and bad. And so I think that plays a role. And, and it's been very strong, at least for the generations that were socialized up until, I would say, the 70s, 80s. Yeah, and so that, that's what the media caters to. And, and I often call this far-right porn. I, I mean, particularly The Guardian and New York Times will have these articles, which are really just either written around a picture where you have like a skinhead Zeke Heiling, or about just a really small story that is kind of blown up. And the reason is people love to read that. Exactly the same as now, people like to read every single thing about Trump, even though it's completely irrelevant. But liberals love to be, love to fear, like they love to be afraid, it seems. Right. So there's an element of sort of schadenfreude, frisson uh, about it, in a way. Yeah, and it's not just schadenfreude, because it, there is real fear in it. I, I mean, I, I've been amazed with, like, nowadays, there's a real reason to be fearful of the far right. But in 1980s and 1990s, in most countries, there wasn't. But people were genuinely afraid and their argument would always be yeah but Hitler also started small right and and which is true but so did thousands of other groups that never became big right and so the the second world war trauma has defined particularly western europe for decades i think it has changed significantly okay now one of the countries that um, people are worried about when it comes to the the far right now and it's a country uh, that you write about uh, and have written about is, is Hungary. Uh, now you spent some time after your PhD uh, at the Central European University, which at that point was uh, in in Budapest. What was the sort of development of your work during that period? Yeah, so I had written both my MA thesis and my PhD on the far right in Western Europe, and pretty much only worked on Western Europe. But later on, I I became friends with Petr Kopetsky, who was a PhD student in Leiden and two who worked on democratization in Central Europe. And I would travel with him to Czech Republic and then I got a girlfriend, which later became my first wife, who was from Slovakia. And that made me much more interested in democratization in Central Europe. And because I couldn't get a job in the Netherlands, I, I moved to Budapest because that was pretty much the only place where I could find a job as well, that it would bring me kind of closer to my then girlfriend who was in Prague and made me better understand that context. And so I, I came there thinking, first of all, that Budapest was as close to Western Europe as you could get in that region, as well as Central European University, which is an English language, really elite university, uh, but also as an opportunity to understand more about that other part of Europe, which mm. is then what I started to work on. And so first by working together with Petter on democratization literature, which was more conceptual and theoretical, and then to extend my research on the far right into Eastern Europe, as I called it then, or what you would say, post-communist Europe. Do you still think that that uh, damaging division that we have in political science, the, the tendency to still split off Western Europe from Eastern Europe, or do you think we're, we're doing something about that now? Yeah, I think, I mean, the idea that East Central Europe, which is part of the EU by and large, that, that they just still refer to that as post-communist, I think is very weird. The vast majority of people there have never experienced communism in any way, shape, or form, which doesn't mean that you can't be influenced by it, but then you're influenced by the legacy of it, which is created during post-communism rather than communism. Given how influential the EU is on national politics, obviously 
a country like the Czech Republic is much more similar to Germany than it is to Ukraine. But there are certain things that I think are more common within at least a large part of that region. But yeah, overall, I think it's a shorthand, as it's a shorthand to speak about Southern Europe or Northern Europe. But it becomes more problematic when you start to orientalize East Central Europe. And so one of the things that's annoying is to read all the time about how nationalism is like endemic there and and corruption, as if nationalism and corruption don't exist in the South or these days, obviously, the North. And uh, with the House of Lords in uh, in the UK, that's something I think some of us uh, um, <laughs> understand. Uh, but let's, let's not get sidetracked into that. At uh, this time, you started actually writing uh, articles with populism or populisms in the title. Um, how did you... you as it were, broaden out from this interest in what many people would perhaps have called the extreme right, if you like, um, towards a, a rather broader definition of what constitutes far right and moving into populism. How did that happen? So when I did my PhD in 1993 to 1998, um, there were already some scholars, particularly Germans, who wrote about right-wing populism for what I, at that point in time, still called the extreme right. And probably the most influential and the best was Hans-Georg Betz who had a very influential book, Radical Right-Wing Populism in Western Europe. I wasn't overly convinced by his definition of populism, which was kind of resentment and kind of protest. And I couldn't really work with that. So um, I went into the library of the University of Leiden and read Ernesto Laclau, who in the late 70s wrote a book about populism, which I couldn't make hat nor tail of. It was just so complex. And I read it over and over. I just didn't, I didn't understand what he was saying. And so I felt that I couldn't use the term populism if I couldn't engage with Leclerc. So I let it be for my PhD. And then I was, I was invited to a conference at the European University Institute by Yves Meny, who did a, this workshop about populism with, with like really big names. And I was just out of uh, grad school. And so I was very honored. And that only had to do with the fact that Peter Mayer was my supervisor. And, and they had this workshop on populism, which then became this edited volume of 2002. And they asked me to write something about Eastern Europe. Now, by that time, I had been reading about populism in Eastern Europe, which has a tradition that goes back to the pre-war period and Andras Bozoki and others have written about it. And so I thought, okay, let's try it again and work with their definition and understanding. Read, of course, Margaret Canavan and make kind of a a working definition of populism. And that type of populism that I wrote that article about was not just of the far right. And so I didn't use it as a euphemism for the radical right, which I did feel at times was had become the case. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's to some extent still the case, certainly in popular discourse, that that is a, a common elision, isn't it? And something yeah. you, you obviously have been very concerned to try and um, do something about. I'm going to take a slight detour now, as you did in some ways, because you then went from Hungary to teach in Edinburgh uh, in the, the UK and you also begin there um, again with Peter Kopetsky to to write about Euroscepticism. Now did you at that time see a very strong link between populism and Euroscepticism or are these at that time anyway two different streams for you? Yeah to me they were different streams. Now uh, I had heard about Euroscepticism because of Paul Taggart who I knew from my first ECPR meeting and he had sent me 
what would later become a foundational article, EJP article, and Euroscepticism, and had commented on it and thought a bit about it. But then Euroscepticism was very outspoken in East Central Europe. And so I, I came to it through that. And I always like to define stuff and conceptualize stuff. And I found the term really vague because it really meant pretty much any type of criticism of the European Union was kind of Euroscepticism. And I remember sitting with Petr outside a little restaurant in Bratislava and is thinking about the two by two table that we made and just drawing it on a little napkin. And of course, as you know, Tim, as a comparativist, a two by two table is like the, the holy grail. And so I, I was just so giddy and I was almost like terrified that I would lose that, that napkin. But Euroscepticism fascinated me in part for similar reasons, because Euroscepticism was seen as bad. But at the same time, it was very vague. And it was kind of unclear, like, whether that threat was so real. At what point, Paul, I mean, I, I guess it's to some extent begging the question into answers, but at what point do you think Euroscepticism and, uh, and populism, you know, begin to meld or, or merge, and at least in some countries. And clearly, you know, if we're thinking about Brexit in the UK, that's something that's almost become a kind of common wisdom now that, you know, our Euroscepticism is populist. Yeah, I think it started mostly with the Maastricht Treaty in 1992. Before that, there was incredibly little Euroscepticism, in part because we were still in the Cold War. And European integration was part of that Western consensus, which was even shared by uh, far-right parties like Front National. Maastricht Treaty changed that. I mean, it took the EU in a very different direction and it provided far-right and populist with, with a new enemy. And so there you see a merger. But at the same time, what, what personally annoyed me was that now increasingly Euroscepticism was part of populism. And so if you were a Euroskeptic, you were a populist. And given that I was very much a Euroskeptic, yet not a populist, nor far-right, it, it, it annoyed me and it was very dismissive. And I found that also a little bit in the literature, that Euroscepticism was kind of seen as, well, these are these are people who are not serious. They don't think there's not a, how on earth could you have any critique of the European Union? And so part of making it clearer was, I think that Euroscepticism has different aspects. And that that came out better, I think, in, in later work that, that made different types of Euroscepticism and whatever. And yes, there's still an overlap between populism and Euroscepticism, but there are non-populist Euroskeptics and they're, they're non-Euroskeptic populists. Right, okay. And then you move from Edinburgh to, to Antwerp, and, and this is, I think, where you produce, you know, what some people would regard as, you know, the seminal article in some ways on populism, the, the populist zeitgeist in government and opposition. What was the thinking behind that? What was the rationale behind writing that article? I mean, it, it very much established this concept that I think has become, you know, very well known now, not just in academia, but also outside uh, of, of populism being, you know, this disjunction between the people on the one hand uh, and the elite on the other, and the idea that the elite have betrayed the people. Where does that come from? Yeah, so in Edinburgh, I didn't work much on populism um, I think that I actually wrote the piece, the, the 2002 piece about populisms in Eastern Europe mm -hmm. while I was bridging the time between Budapest and Edinburgh in Prague. And I, mostly everyone was busy with nationalism in um, in Edinburgh, which makes sense, of course, at that point in time. And so I, I was reading up a little bit about particularly the LSE interpretations of nationalism, um, Smith and that kind of thing. 
And then I came to Antwerp and there was this really smart PhD student called Jan Jagers, who was working with one of my colleagues, Stefan Walgraaf, on a PhD. And it was about populism, but populism in communication. And so they asked me whether I, I would be co-chair. And, and, I did, and Jan and I spoke a lot about it. And, and I had that definition from 2002. And, and he worked in another direction. And together we, we just pretty much came up with that type of similar thinking about it. And that made that definition. Now, the weird thing was that I had that definition, which I kind of developed purely because I was fascinated by the, by the vagueness of the concept and talked to him about it. And, and then I, I went back to Leiden, as I sometimes did, to speak to Peter Mayer, my former supervisor. And so I told him, look, I have this definition. And, and also I think I, I, have, I have this kind of idea or this title, like the populist zeitgeist. And he said, yeah, that's awesome. You should, read, uh, you should write an article about that. I said, well, but I actually only really have this, this definition and this kind of idea about things that are happening, but I don't have like much evidence. For it. Fortunately, he pushed me. And so I wrote the piece and I, I wanted to have it in government and opposition because government and opposition had pretty much published the key pieces on populism as far as Jones. Um, and I, to be honest, obviously, I never thought that the definition would take off. And, and it's a good example of why things take off. I mean, it, it is very much in line of the thinking of many different people. Like, so it's not so much original. What, what it is original in is bringing it specifically together and probably in a reasonably concise manner. I actually think that, and, and this is very petty to complain when, when the article has been cited so often. I actually think there are many other ideas in the article that are quite interesting and have played out pretty pretty well, not so much for the country, but for my prediction, um, which are kind of ignored. I mean, the vast majority of people who cite my article, I don't think actually read it. They just use the definition, which is fine, right? Um, it's, it's an enormous influence that you have, but the article was about more. Now, the interesting thing is that after that, I didn't write about populism for years. And the article wasn't cited much. The article has been cited crazily pretty much like six, seven years later, um, when, and, and particularly since 2015, 16, which is like another lesson that like, it's, it's not so much that I push like the envelope, like the envelope is being pushed and then like I'm being put in that envelope. I think that's interesting. I mean, you know, you, in some senses, that you predicted the zeitgeist before the zeitgeist became the zeitgeist, perhaps. Yeah, so my argument actually is that the zeitgeist can be seen both in culture and particularly what will be called low culture and in the discourse of parties. And so later, Matthijs Rodin, for example, uh, wrote a PhD disproving my argument, but he did this mostly by looking at at what the programs of the parties and, and I never actually claimed that they had populist policies. I think populism is largely just used as a as a distraction and as a tool. But I think you very clearly see, and maybe you have to be older to actually see it because it has been around for so long, mm-hmm. like this populist narrative, and, and you see it in culture. And so my example always is when I grew up and I watched a political debate or just a political program, like the news or whatever it was, I saw a professor there who explained stuff. Like now I see a, a journalist in the middle of a street, like interviewing a man or woman in the street who tells us what it is. And then a politician has to answer, has to justify their existence to the person in the street. I mean, that's pure populism. Yeah, interesting you say that. I mean, you're a professor now, you do a lot of media work. 
don't you think that professors still have a role in that sense? I mean, clearly, in some senses, you're playing that role yourself. Yeah, although I barely ever go on TV. Yes, it, I, don't, I don't particularly have a problem if the professors actually find it problematic that they're no longer there. So I grew up watching professors that I later got taught by. I mean, most of the, the most famous professors in, in Leiden in my department of political science were either columnists at major newspapers or were the election specialists on election night, like Rudy Anderweg, for example. And in, in Belgium, you have Christus Schauer, who, who is just a feast to watch during the election. He's phenomenal. And so I actually miss that. Right? And, and it's not as if experts or professors are unfallible but actually politics is is a business is a serious is a skill is a serious affair and it needs to be analyzed by people who can do that and you don't have to be a professor to do that but the reason i don't understand why politicians need to answer whatever comes up in a person in the middle of a street. I mean, let, let me talk a little bit more about what you do to kind of popularize political science, if you know, I can use that, that term. I mean, do you think that you have almost a duty to do that? Do you think academics have a duty to, to do that? You know, rather than stay in the so-called ivory tower, to use a populist term, you know, we should be getting out there and, and talking about what we do to people more than perhaps we, we previously have. There's, of course, ego. There are other material benefits. I actually wrote my first op-eds in the Netherlands as a graduate student, which was to a certain extent because they paid pretty well. Now, I was very opinionated, so it was very easy to have an opinion and, and share them with the world. But if they wouldn't have paid, I, I wouldn't have written so many. If no one cared about it, I probably wouldn't have written so many. But as said, I was formed very much by a department of, I think, exceptional scholars. In Leiden, the Department of Political Science of Leiden at that point in time had some of the best academics I've ever worked with and ever seen, but most of them aspire to be a public intellectual rather than just an academic. Interestingly, Peter Mayer didn't have that initially. He only had that later in his career, but most of the others had it. And so I aspire to that, which is not the same as a pundit. Right, okay. For me, a public intellectual is someone who uses their academic knowledge to understand things. And and so I think you have a, a duty to that, particularly when you work at a public institution, because it's the public that funds you. And so now that being said, again, ego plays a big role. And of course, the longer you're in the media, the more you become personal and political. And the question then is like, in, in what way are you still speaking? as a professor rather than as a pundit. And I think that's the biggest threat to people who are regularly in the media, including myself. I think possibly there's another one, isn't there, which is you get asked about subjects, topics, uh, events that aren't really particularly relevant to your own expertise. How do you handle that particular issue? Yeah, I think again, like I, I can say now that most of the time I say, well, that's not what I do. Or and I, if it is something that I at least know people who do that, I will forward them. But sometimes. It I don't know even people who do that. But of course, I do that now much more because I get a lot of invitations and, and I don't actually like to spend that much time on it anymore. But when I was younger, and it would be, for example, the New York Times who wanted to interview me about an aspect of Dutch politics that I actually didn't know much about, I probably did it. And, and so it's hard to say no. I've always said no a lot, and I credit 
to a certain extent, Dutch culture to that, as well as my my mother, who taught me that saying no is a good thing. But it's it's hard, and it's um, it's particularly hard when you're doing something live, like when you're in a studio and you're there to talk about a certain thing, and then they whoops go to something else, right? And and are you going to say, well, I don't know anything about that? So again, it's it's important not to be controlled by the media, and and that is not easy. I and honestly, I struggle I struggle with this the whole time. And I think that I can talk endlessly about the advantages of being a public intellectual or, or speaking out, but there are massive disadvantages. And one of the one of the biggest risks, of course, is that you pretty much become a cliche, which then affects your actually primary reputation too. Because if I'm just going to speak about everything and mostly nonsense, then people are kind of going to think, well, maybe his academic work is crap too. <laughs> the Far Right Today, which is the book you published with, with Polity in, in 2019, is a, a very good example of a book that, you know, really does range a, a great deal globally. But it's also a very brave book in the sense that you're prepared to call, you know, administrations in certain countries that some would regard as mainstream uh, as far right. You know, you call out uh, the BJP in India, for example. You know, you'll talk about Trump in that vein uh, as well. Has that got you into trouble? No, I don't think so. I was never particularly liked on the right or on the far right, but also not particularly disliked. I mean, one of the f- interesting things is people are all the time busy, academics and particularly social scientists are all the time busy about like, oh, uh, cancel culture and like uh, everyone is against us. Look, in the end, most people in power don't give, how do I say this politely, don't care much about what social scientists do. What they care about is what economists do. And what they care about is what climate change scholars do, because that's where the money is. Yeah, I get at times they send like letters to the president or to the dean of my university that they should fire me. But those are those are irrelevant. And obviously, I get a lot of so-called fan mail um, through through Twitter and, and stuff. But you just don't get invited. Like, I mean, I haven't gotten an invitation from a right wing party I think in like forever. It's not as if I got a lot of them before I started to call them out. So no. And to be honest, it isn't particularly brave. Again, because you don't pay a price. I, I'm, I have phenomenal privilege. I think why I do it is in part is because I'm old. And so I still remember what the consensus was in the 1980s and the 1990s. And people now, like one of the things that, it, that they always come back to me is, well, but this is not radical because the majority of the people think this, right? I mean, that's not the definition of radical, right? Or this is not racist because the majority of the people think it. The majority of the people in the South where I live also used to think like all kind of things which were racist. And my point is not even so much about shaming. Again, I've long felt, and I still feel it today for most countries, that the real threat to liberal democracy doesn't come from the far right. It comes from the spineless and opportunistic mainstream. And this is what you see today in Europe as well. Of course, barring Hungary. But look at how the EU treats Hungary and how we have moved to the right that where we now discuss whether things are nativist, which uh, literally would get you into jail in the Netherlands in the 1980s. Now, complete free speech or something against putting you in jail for that. But for me, concepts are are permanent. And so you don't adjust what is nativist or racist because more people like it or because more powerful people like it. And let's let's finish on your latest book. Well, it's a forthcoming book uh, in a way. And I mean, if there's... uh 
one subject that one can write about that one automatically gets into dangerous territory is Israel and the settlements, etc. What what brought you into writing about that? Okay, so again, very random. I was in Israel in, in the beginning of this century, and I have a friend there, Ami Pedersua, who has written a lot about the far right, and they had a student. Sivan Hirschhoffler, who wanted to do a PhD with me. I said, well, don't do that because I'm, I'm in Antwerp. And so if you have a PhD from University of Antwerp, you're never going to get a job. Um, but she was um, stubborn and, and came and wrote a PhD about settlers, not so much the movement, but the, their political activism. And I told her, like, well, you... And I was obsessed with settlers already since a student. I had written as an undergrad a paper about Gush Emunim, which was the first um, settler movement. And what fascinated me was how radical, how extreme the Israeli far right was. And so I pushed her to, to write something about the Israeli settler movement because there are actually virtually no books on it. And so she said, well, we can do it together. And I said, okay, but it's very much Sivan's work. And this took forever. Um, various babies were born on both sides of the of the authorship uh, duo. And in the end, what I really wanted to do, and she as well, was look at the settler movement from the perspective of social movements. Social movement literature is very narrow in the sense it's almost all about Western Europe and North America. It's almost all about left-wing or so-called progressive movements. And many of these movements have not been particularly influential. And there you have this movement that has existed for many decades and has, according to many people, People been phenomenally influential and no one writes about it and so this is really what we did and we have been incredibly lucky right? because we got two reviewers who looked at the proposal for what it is an academic proposal now you might think of course they did but that is not so of course when you write about Israel and, and Palestinians and so this, I think the book is good, and I think it, it has the quality to, to be published at Cambridge University Press, but I also totally acknowledge that nine out of ten cases when you submit this, you're shot down by someone who either thinks you're too pro-Israel or you're, thinks you're too anti-Israel. Well, the reaction to that book, I think, is going to be absolutely fascinating, as is the book itself. We've come to the end of our allotted time, so uh, I'd really like to thank uh, Kaz for uh, taking time out from what I know is a very, very busy schedule to talk to us on our podcast. Uh, he's got a busy schedule, not least because he does his own podcast, I should say. Uh, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong. It's Radicala, is that right? Radical. Okay, close enough. Um, <laughs> he, he not only has academics on there, but he has all sorts of public figures. I think uh, one of the latest is Billy Bragg. So if you're Absolutely. a Billy Bragg fan, do give that uh, a listen. We should really play out to a Billy Bragg song, but we don't have the rights to any. So uh, <laughs> uh, and we could argue about which which one is our favourite as uh, as well. I think I'd pick Leroy Stubbs tears, but uh, you'd probably go for something earlier, I suspect. Uh, and I just realised I said Leroy and not Levi for some reason. Anyway, but there we go. I'd just like once again to thank Cass very much. I'd like to say to everybody uh, listening, uh, if you could rate us uh, on the podcast, that would be absolutely great. If you could tell your friends about it, that would be even better. UK and Changing Europe, Brexit and Beyond, they're called. UK and Changing Europe, of course, has a big web presence. You can sign up to our newsletter. Please follow us on Twitter, on Facebook and all the other platforms and of course you can do very much the same thing with Cass Muda as well. So Cass, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me.